Hello, friends. Hello and welcome once again, my friends. I'm LD Madeira, as you hopefully know by now, and this is Improv and Magic. I always say that every episode is a special episode, and of course, I always mean it, but today is definitely an extra special episode because I had the opportunity to talk to another legend in the world of improv. She's fearless, she's inspirational, she's kind, she is Susan Messing. She's one of the founding members of the Annoyance Theater, where she has created roles in over 30 original productions, including the longest-running musical in Chicago, Co-Ed Prison Sluts. Susan teaches and performs at the Annoyance Theater and at the I.O. Theater, and has also taught improvisational comedy for DePaul University, the University of Chicago, and Loyola University. Her essays have been published in the Second City Almanac of Improvisation and in Sharna Halpern's book, Art by Committee. Susan has also had multiple television and movie appearances, including a role in the film Let's Go to Prison. We talk a little bit about that experience and how much she loved it. Susan is known all over for being a strong, unfiltered performer. She has been a source of inspiration to performers everywhere, including myself. We had a very honest and fun conversation today, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with all of you. So, ladies and gentlemen, here now is my very special guest, Susan Messing. I am so incredibly excited to be talking to the legend herself, the wonderful Susan Messing. How are you doing, Susan? Oh, that, that would be I. I'm fine. Thank you for having me today. You know, here's something that people can't see. Uh, you have this wonderful artwork on your wall right now, and it's basically a, what looks like a mounted lobster. What's the story about that? It's a mounted lobster, and the other half of him is on the other side. No, actually, I have him... Um, you notice in his right claw, he's holding a pencil. Uh, that's my homage to Bob Dole, who had a paralyzed right hand from World War II. So he would often hold a pencil in his right hand uh, so that he could shake hands with his left hand. So for those Bob Dole fans out there who didn't know that, I've just kept you to some major information. Well, I did not know that either. Yeah, you didn't know that. Now you know. But yeah, if you look at him all through the years, he always has something in his left hand and uh, so that, his right hand so that he can shake with his left because it was disabled. Wow. So I have that. I got I got this in Seattle. I, I enjoy it. Actually, it joins, if I can show you here, there's a cow butt. <laughs> there's a cow butt on the wall. It's a big one. Can you see it now? I can see it, yeah. There's a cow butt on the wall, and of course, also a fake above there. They're fake deer. Yeah. So this whole place is going to be filled with fake taxidermy when I'm done with the dining room. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, just in general, how are you doing these days? I, I feel like I'm in flux in a good way. Like, it, it's weird. A, a friend of mine asked me uh, if I could talk to her sister 
who is needs, I guess, a couple more hours to get her life coach certification. And I said, sure, I'll talk to them. And I thought, oh no, do I need a life coach? You know what I mean? But, uh, (laughs) But no, I, I, I'm, I'm actually helping her with her clinic hours, but I also might have an epiphany. I think after um, after Michael died and my, my husband Michael died and I had um, a real complicated grief during a pandemic, uh, there's a part of me that said, fuck all of it. I, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Uh, happily, I have returned, of course, to uh, improv comedy. So that's that's a that's good news for me. I don't know if it's good news for the world, but uh, I'm I'm happy to make that choice right now, and I'm enjoying touring. I actually am enjoying touring. I think it's a wonderful decision for all of us too. Thank you. Plus, my kids okay, and as long as my kids okay, I'm okay too. And my my small dog is actually licking my my calf right now. Please stop it. Thank you. It's how she handles her anxiety. <laughs> What's your dog's name? Well, this one's Bitta, which means please in German. She's a Shorty, half Shih Tzu and half Yorkie. And there's also George, who is a great Pyrenees mix. So she sort of looks like a golden retriever, but she's definitely great Pyrenees. She wants to follow you. She's a perimeter dog. So she kind of sits on the top stoop and just stares at you majestically. And if you go toward her, she'll back up. She's also scared of the laundry basket, the medicine cabinet, uh, flags, uh, floor grates, noises. She's scared of noises. She's pretty much scared of everything, but she's a majestic, beautiful creature. And if you get her on my bed, she'll be a body pillow. So, so I can't complain. Plus we also have a cat named squirrel. Who's a whore. (laughs) Oh man. I love that. Um, let's start as I always do at the very beginning with you. So could you please tell us, uh, where did you grow up and what was growing up for you? Like, I grew up in a town called Short Hills, New Jersey, which is a lovely place to grow up. Um, but it's a kind of a fancy town. Um, it's the kind of town where students have better cars than their teachers uh, at the local high school. It's, uh, I think, unrealistic for a life, but it was certainly fairly magical and safe growing up. Um, I, I feel like my core is New Jersey, but I feel like my heart is Chicago. So... There you go. Okay. And um, what was uh, what was family life like in the beginning for you? Um, we have a, my mom's side of the family, super, super tight. My dad's side was more, I almost felt like they were more friends than family. Um, my parents got separated when I was in fifth, sixth grade, and they didn't get divorced until I was in 11th grade, because I think apparently they were fighting over everything. So um, apparently at at one point it was the longest divorce in the history of the state of New Jersey, but I think the record's been broken. Yeah. You you don't take five years to get a divorce unless you really want to fuck with someone. And my dad was pretty litigious. Um, And my mom had three daughters and she had never, I mean, at the time, you know, you, you went from your home to your marriage, I mean, 1959. So she got married when she was 19. Uh, although super, super smart. She was at Wellesley at the time and my dad had just graduated from Princeton. So I guess it was a good match. Uh, she had twins by the time she was 20 and me by the time she was 22. I mean, I made one before I clot, you know, clotted at age 39. So I'm duly impressed that my mother was even able to do it, that any of our mothers were able to do any of that shit so early on. Um, I certainly couldn't have done it. 
but so there was certainly harmony and then weird divorcey stuff. And I think my comedy came out of um, trying to distract tension. Hmm. So was comedy normally your way of dealing with all of the stress and negativity that, that you were seeing at the time? Yeah, my dad was really, really funny until, as my mom said, his comedy sort of became cruel. He ended up moving to, uh, he used to live in West Palm before he died um, when he was 54. Uh, He had colon cancer. Um, And he was very, very funny. But if, you know, if comedy is cruel, um, it's not always very funny. So... I think I, I, you know, if you call uh, comedy, like laughter is a plosive release of tension, right? So I think I was constantly trying to dissipate tension. Certainly my father was the funniest person I knew when I was young. Easily, easily. When you found comedy, who were you trying to make laugh at the time? And I ask that because a lot of people who get into comedy, they always want to make either their mom or their dad laugh. Was that, uh, does that kind of describe what, what you were going through at that time when you found comedy? Yeah, I would say my mom and my dad. I mean, I grew up, I was an I Love Lucy girl, you know, and then I was an original uh, SNL girl. So watching that type of stuff, I mean, that's how old I am. I was born in, you know, late December back in 63, you know, so that that was my era and it was subversive and exciting and and even the the simplicity of I Love Lucy always, I don't know, killed me. It killed me when I was five years old. So I'm sure it's somewhere in my base that a little Gilda, a little Jane, you know, curtain, a little bit of that. So, I mean, that, that, and definitely my friends, uh, I was probably known. I mean, my friends were all funny too, but I don't know. Maybe I, I just chose to see if I could make a career in it. And I have no idea, probably because I was a horrible theater major at Northwestern and I was so bad at it that I was sort of an unintentional comedy and Northwestern has a great loophole that they can't kick you out of the department for a lack of talent. They just kind of say, Hey, you know, you on crew, you really uh, fold up those, uh, those cords real well. Those asbestos covered cords. You keep doing that. But we sucked. You really sucked. (laughs) Um, at what age did you become interested in being a performer? I think I always was. I think even at, you know, it's funny. You remember as a child who was really attractive and who they kind of squinted at and went personality plus that, that I was in the latter category where you're like, she's cute, but not beautiful. So traditional things kind of, I, I just seem to sideswipe anything traditional and 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 I will say this to my father's credit, he raised three women as really independent people. So I never felt that I had to. Maybe because my sister Bonnie, you know, went to Yale and Harvard Business School, and my sister Robin went to Clark and Rutgers and became a lawyer. And and so money and law. I think I got to do whatever I wanted, sort of, as long as my grades were good and my room was clean. So I think comedy was maybe number three gets that kind of leeway to do whatever you want if your parents have traditional uh designs for you although my parents didn't my sisters were twins very different from each other and um had really different interests but both super super smart i was more people smart i was less smart smart i would rather study for a half an hour and get the a minus than five hours and get the a for some reason my brain only absorbed so much you know you're willing to do good enough, not not great when it came to that. 
that's a horrible answer. I it was the best that I could do. I have found that I I think that I have undiagnosed ADHD. Um, so I get passionate about the things that interest me. Um, and I've also created coping skills because I just don't feel like being on Ritalin. So I kind of write lists and I cross them out and I try to be super diligent and, you know, clean up as I go along and all basic things. But even right now, even to update Chrome for this interview, I like broke in a sweat. And Sophia came, my daughter came and helped me. And I'm like, oh God, oh God. And then I have to reapply every year for my job at University of Chicago. It's a formality, but they just sent that the other day. And I was like, oh God, I've got to go and do the forms on the computer. You know what I mean? I'm like dripping with sweat. And I'm like, oh God, I'll call my friend Erin. She's really good at it. Cause it's true. Erin can do in five minutes what it would take me five hours to do. So I think I was, I think I was destined for an alternative career. <laughs> there really wasn't a career improv when I started. There's no such thing. It's, I mm. think what you did, you know, while you were waiting to do second city or something, I started in 1986. That's when I graduated Northwestern. So that was, I mean, I started taking classes at the IO. There's no such thing as a career in this thing. Now it's sort of changed a lot, hasn't it? Sure has. Sure has. Um, I'm curious, why did you think uh, you did terribly at, at Northwestern as a, as a theater major? Um, I just wasn't a very good actor. You know, people who came there were kind of fully formed in a sense. I had a lot of guts and I, and I guess I wasn't afraid of unintentional comedy because it probably landed in the same place. But if you watched me do Shakespeare or Ibsen or Chekhov, you'd probably go, oh, no, no, don't, don't destroy the class. Just stop, stop that. Don't do Shaw. Yes, I know there's a subtle way to get to the comedy, but there's nothing subtle about you, Susan. Absolutely stop it. Just stop it. So my teacher, David Downs, was very patient with me because he knew I understood him intellectually. I just couldn't seem to get my body to do it. <coughs> Excuse me. And then when I started doing improv, all of a sudden, so many things made sense about being in the moment. And I think it absolutely helped me as an actor tremendously. So much so that I really didn't want to go back to regular acting if I didn't have to. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> I do, but I'd rather say my own shit, you know, if I can. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I, I had a very similar experience at, uh, as you. I studied theater at Barry University and I thought it was a, an okay actor. Um, but then when I found improv, I really feel like I can't see myself really doing anything else. And I would say ever since I learned improv, my acting all around has become so much better. Do you think that's a very common thing that happens for actors who discover uh, improv? I, I think that all improvisers have to learn how to act if you want to really hang out in the moment. And I think all actors need to learn how to improvise so that they can be okay when somebody says, you did the first two takes perfectly. Third take, you know what the function of the beat is. Um, say whatever you want. Yeah. You know, which to me is my joy. Because so I was like, please let me say something that is so much better than what you wrote. And I don't even care that I don't get the improv fee because there's a script on set. I guess that's the loophole in SAG. I don't care. I'd just rather say my own shit if I can. And certainly if I'm honoring what, what they're asking for, you're going to get, you know, something pretty good, I hope. God, I hope. 37 years in. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> well, how did you find improv? I'm curious. When did you discover improv and what was it that made you say, this is definitely for me more than anything else? 
my sophomore year at Northwestern, I auditioned for something called the Meow Show, which is their comedy show. And it's pretty much short form improv and sketch. And I auditioned for a guy named Dan Patterson. Some English guy was at Northwestern. He's the guy who ended up creating Whose Line Is It Anyway? I didn't get in. Uh, and then my junior year, I had heard about this thing called a Herald audition. Didn't know what that was. It was 1985, maybe, downtown at a place called Improv Olympic. At the time, it was called Improv Olympic until the Olympic Committee sued them uh, and made them change it to I.O. And uh, I didn't get that one either. And <laughs> But when I graduated Northwestern, probably not much a better actress than when I began. Again, I had chutzpah, not talent. Um, I remembered that place and I said, why don't I just take a class there? And I did. And I'm glad I did because I fell into a rabbit hole of joy. And even in the beginning, I was terrible at it, but I knew I could do it one day. I was like, I, I can do this one day. I got, Sharna and I always joke about this. She's, she, I told her she was a bitch and she told me I was a pussy for crying all the time. I'm like, no, you're a mean, horrible person. And, and we laugh at it. We've been on panels where we have like, just so agreed to disagree that we're like crying. We're laughing so hard because she was so fucking mean. And I know she was so fucking mean because there were times at parties later on that she'd put her arms around me and she'd say, I used to hate you. I'm like, Oh my God, you're horrible. But then one day we had a musical, uh, a musical class. And that for me was at the time was like breathing. I, you know, I've made up shit in my tub all the time, just singing and stuff. And I couldn't believe how easy that was. And during the break, Sharna came up to me and she said, I'm going to be really hard on you because one day you're going to be invaluable to me. Lo and behold. Yeah. Lo and behold. <laughs> Lo and behold. So I, I guess for me at that time, I was tenacious, not talented. Um, but that, that propelled me when my talent waned. And when I wanted to give up, my talent kind of sustained me. So... Um, it kind of fed into each other. And I also met up with people who didn't judge me the way that this status did, you know, they all went great. Let's play with her. So, and by the way, having a girl on your team was a coup. It was an amazing thing to have a girl. So my team was really, really good to me. We were the D team. We didn't even have a name, which later became Blue Velveeta, which was a great team. You know, it's funny. You, you mentioned um, the whole thing of having more tenacity than than talent. Um, do you think that that's very essential to be more tenacious than talented? No, I think it's a combo platter. I think that when people want to give up on anything, that recommitment is what will get them there. Commitment's not enough. It's recommitment when you want to give up. That's how I felt, or at least that's what propelled me. I was like, don't you dare give up. So I don't know where I got that core. Is that my New Jersey core coming back? I don't know. But um, there was something in me that was like, uh-uh, I can do this one day. Even if I can't do this well now, I can do this one day. And I'm glad I didn't give up because now I have a career where none occurred. <laughs> While you were training at uh, at IO, was there a, was there any particular moment where it was really confirmed that this was definitely the right thing for you to do? Yep, uh, my boyfriend at the time, a nice guy named Louis Alexakis, who is uh, now a brilliant restaurateur um, of Greek groovy food. Uh, he listened at the bar 
of one of the weird places we were taking classes. I can't remember if it was Brown Barley Corns or I don't know what the fuck it was called. It was some weird bar we were taking classes in. And I was studying with Dell. And Dell came up to Sharna after class and said, mm, I know that girl you hate. And Sharna like sees Louie there and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, yeah, you do. I'm the Jewish girl you hate. Uh, and and Louie leans in and he says, Susan Messing? He goes, yeah, Susan Messing, that girl you hate. She did a really good monologue in class today. So between that and Mick Napier, who had kind of a, it was almost like a tacit agreement that if you were on stage, you absolutely belong there. So why waste that? I'm sure he didn't say it like that, but that was my interpretation. I just kind of barreled on and felt uh, certainly affirmed by my peers and certainly affirmed by Dell because I don't believe Dell taught me anything as much as he affirmed me. Um, he was not an easy man. So the fact that he liked me instead of me saying, Joel doesn't like women. I was just like, he likes me because I'm stupid. Um, like that, probably a little bit of masochist in me at the time, because you really had to kind of come up and sort of, you had to sort of take it. You really had to take it and you had to take the hard note. And Dell rarely had to give me the hard note, but when he did, man, it makes you want like to have the floor open up and you disappear because he was tough. He was tough and he could be mean and he could just give people back their money and say, get out of here, which God bless. He had the, you know, he had the right to do that. And actually I've got to be really honest about Dell too. I would sit him talk about, I would sit there and listen to him talk about Iranian TV for 20 minutes. And I'd think, what the fuck does this have to do with improv? And then I'd be on stage for like three minutes for the whole class. Um, and I remember when I started teaching and people would complain about Dell, I, I would try to couch it by going, Dell's a living legend. And, and he might just talk about Iranian TV for 20 minutes, but he's such a font of knowledge and he's supporting you and learning everything you could possibly learn about everything. You know, I just kind of tried to put it in a better package so that uh, people wouldn't think that he was just wasting their time because he wasn't. But you had to kind of squint sometimes to get the lesson. And oftentimes it was simply getting a horrible note that was saying you were playing below your intelligence level. And I'm thinking, no, no, I'm playing to the top of my intelligence. Oh God. <laughs> but, but I, but I was very loving to Dell. I gave him hugs because he was so intellectually superior to anybody, but everybody was terrified of him. So I was like, I, you know, you just hug this big guy, old guy. And he's like, oh, oh, oh. and it was nice. You know, it's funny. Um, I had recently on the podcast, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Joe Bill, and uh, he shared with me a, a really great Del Close story that I just love. And I obviously can't tell it as good as he can, but around the first, this was one of the, his first meetings with Dell, and they were just like sitting around and, and getting high and smoking joints. And Joe says that he tells Dell, thinking that this is going to impress him. Yeah, my dad played football for Notre Dame. And Dell just kind of takes a pregnant pause and says, oh, your dad played football for, more, for Notre Dame? Well, I taught Belushi how to shoot up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, I thought you were just going to say, well, I did black magic with, Al, you know, Alistair Crowley or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, Dell did a lot of shit. Dell did crazy fucking shit. I mean, the, he was like, what is he, doing lights for Wavy Gravy. He was doing, you know, drugs with Timothy, you know, was it O'Leary? Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary. Not O'Leary. That's the cow in Chicago that started the fire in 1871. Dell, Dell was old, but he wasn't that old. No. 
Yeah, I've definitely heard a lot of stories uh, like very much similar to what you described about Dell, about how he was brilliant, but you kind of had to hang in there because, you know, he gave a he gave a lot of tough love. That's that's I don't call that tough love. I call that cruelty. He's a fucking teacher. Some people are lucky to get on stage. Some people are just lucky that they're like have enough bravery to get on stage. Other people need the hard note. Not everyone needs the hard note. It's not suck it up and take my shit. Cause I have information. Cause if that were the case, then he should have been responsible for teaching us more as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I do understand his magic and I loved Dell. Um, but I do think his reputation as a you, uh, is ridiculous. And I think that he was, he's more popular in death than he was in life. And, you know, I just, I really just liked him as a person. I found him fascinating. You know, I did not find him to be a guru, but I did find him to be a man who was, you know, probably dicking with L. Ron Hubbard. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, what were some of the things that you learned in improv that you didn't learn at Northwest that really helped you develop yourself as a performer? Uh, Northwestern. Um, I'm sure they were saying the same things in different languages, you know, when you really come down to it. Because, But I think once I learned this kind of shit, I was so excited to demystify it for other people. Um, being in the moment sounds so esoteric. Just smell it, touch it, taste it, feel it now. You know what I mean? Like, why did we make this so damn complicated? Um, I didn't really understand backstory and intentions and all that stuff. I still sort of don't. Sometimes I'll be reading lines and I'll think the tree is green. The tree is green. I'll just be dealing with line readings instead of intentions. And it just becomes muddy and weird. There's just something about instant make-believe where you're writing the moment while you're exploring the moment, while you're creating the moment which I know is tactical, but it still feels like magic to me. I mean, there are times where I'll come off stage and say, you guys, there was a lean cuisine in every scene. And everybody looks at me and they're like, uh, Susan, you, you did that. And I was like, oh, I know it's magic. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm still hyped up on that shit. And I'm so excited because I'm nothing without my friend. I don't want to do it on my own. There are times where I've gone off to do stand-up and chances are I'm going to have to, but maybe I'll have to do stand-up as myself. And that would be a really scary a challenge versus like a persona based thing. Cause that's what mm. I did in the past. So, I mean, that's a, that's a challenge for life. So what am I going to do with my life now? Oh no. We're going to have to talk to that life coach, huh? I mean, granted, she only wants her clinic hours, but I need a life. <laughs> um, when did you, when did you move to Chicago? I went to Northwestern. I went in 1982 uh, I didn't even know Northwestern existed really until I did something called the NHSI, the National High School Institute, uh, the summer between my junior and senior year. And I did theater and it was intense. And I thought, oh, this is this might break me down and help me understand acting more, um, which I think helped me get into Northwestern. My grades were good. My extracurriculars were great, but not like it is right now with the unfortunate addition of our football team and everybody else being disgusting. I'm really sad about all this stuff that just came out. Um, but in 1986, I graduated and I stayed. I wasn't going to go to LA or New York. I was terrible. And Chicago is such a good city for process. It's a great city to learn. People just get better by recommitting here, I think. 
Um, I'm not saying that LA isn't great. I love LA and I love my friends in New York too. Um, I just think that those are cities of product and selling more than studying. Um, I think it's harder to live in those places sometimes when you're not being cast all the time. So I really appreciated the training here and I stayed and I started at IO and uh, I became part of what we ultimately created, which was the Annoyance Theater. And then 12 years after I started, I landed on the main stage at Second City. Hmm. How did the Annoyance Theater get started? The Annoyance Theater got started. uh, Mick... Napier and a bunch of people from Indiana University uh, were in an improv self-created group called Double Take, I think it was called. And Mick had only read the Jeffrey Sweets book, Something Wonderful, right away. And he went, okay, let's do improv. He'd never done it before. And then he moved to Chicago and he was taking classes at IO probably and at Second City as well. And I think he just had started teaching at Second City when he created a show called Splatter Theater with a bunch of his friends, which was a parody of slasher movies where the stage starts out as white and it is red, completely red, covered in blood by the end. And there are all these kind of archetypes like the class dick or the school slut or whatever the hell it is. And they all end up with a horrifying death. And I watched that show twice and I never see anything twice. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. There's something very perverse um, about mixed comedy that really appealed to me it just it just made rational sense to me so um we did this it was called nimbus it was sort of this workshop series where a bunch of people like no gregoropolis was one of them rest in peace um and a bunch of other directors would you would be handed a theme like clown car and we'd be like what is that and they're like figure it out and then all of a sudden we'd be performing clown car i don't know and the, that uh became they had auditions for splatter theater too. I think we had to walk into a room and scream, um, which I did. Uh, and we got into splatter theater too. And then this woman, uh, who was, I guess the, we were subletting a space on top of cotton Chicago or can't remember, or it was cross currents and then cotton Chicago. We were subletting a space upstairs and, uh, and I guess the woman who was taking our rent was shoving it up her nose in cocaine or whatever the fuck happened. We had 10 days to like vacate the place. Like there were guys who came with like wood glue in their hair, like unicorn heads that were guarding our stuff. And we had 10 days to find a, a new location. And we did on Broadway and Mick took about 10 people that he could stomach from Splatter 2 and created a show called Coed Prison Sluts. And I was one of those people. So when we found our new space on Broadway, we were all sort of creating a new theater called The Annoyance. That's the story, I think. <laughs> I mean, we might have more, you know, more specificity there, but I, I think that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. Okay. He's a really, really great director. Yeah, I've heard a lot of great things about uh, Mick. I, I haven't met him yet, but I read his book, Improvise. Really good book. I think it can change a lot of people who are very worried about improvising correctly. Um, I do have trouble reading improv books because I don't want to steal people's shit inadvertently. I just don't want to because I make up shit all the fucking time for, for teaching and performing, you know, obviously. So, um, but I do remember that first page 
of his book where he said, once upon a time, there was a scene. It was a great scene. Everybody loved that scene. We all high-fived each other, got laid that night. Yay, us. And then the next day, there was a horrible scene. Oh, my God, it was a horrible scene. We dissected the fuck out of that to the core, and we discovered that everybody asked questions. You guys, let's not ask questions anymore. Let's just make declarative statement. Okay, the rule is no questions, and that's how rules began. So I've never been too much of a fan of rules. I think there's suggestions that might get you off faster and more often. Um, I certainly like dealing with reality because then we don't have to backtrack too much, but, um, I'm always kind of pushing the button of that. So I'm always looking for opportunities to not do something correctly, but to do it with joy and heightened joy pulls out fun, which pulls out funny. That's just me. I'm not right. I'm not right about any of this, but it's what's gotten me through my day as an improviser. I especially love the frustrated improviser. That's my forte. That's my favorite thing to do. I actually have a class called Fix It or Make It Worse, where people sit around and they just bitch about that person who just, they love offstage, but they can't do a good scene with on stage or whatever. And I give them a million opportunities to, you know, fix it or make it worse <laughs> and celebrate it because improvising correctly doesn't appeal to me very well. There's one woman, I'm not going to say her name, but she ran improv, ran improv in a certain community in Colorado. And I guess she saw me and Mick play in messing with a friend and, uh, you know, playing with Mick is like playing with mercury, you know, from a thermometer. It's, it's, it's rough and it's fun. And you're kind of like, just hold on, just hold on, you know, like, you know, and I, as long as I ground it, it's going to be fine because he's all over the fucking place and it's awesome, but it's horrifying. It can be horrifying, but it's awesome. Um, and she watched the show. And meanwhile, my friends who know about improv were like, oh my God, you guys bent form. That was brilliant. And this person was like, my 97-year-old mother-in-law was there and she was disgusted and that's not improv. And I run improv in this place. And meh, 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 meh. Yeah. So Jen just gave her money back. We didn't apologize, that's for sure. And uh, two years later, I was in Denver to teach and this person came up to me and introduced herself. And I said, oh, I remember you. And I'd never met her before. I said, I remember you. You're the one who complained about my show. And she looked just stricken. And I said, I'm not upset about it. I said, I appreciate how brave you were to come back and want to learn from me. She probably Googled me after the show and went, oh, fuck, what did I do? But I also appreciate the part of people who feel like a right fighter. They're not a right fighter because they're assholes. They want to honor the way they learned it. And so they don't want to fuck that up in the translation of the next generation, next generation. That's why people sort of double down on their schools of thought. When I'm kind of like, I don't know, everybody owns me. Nobody owns me. I just want you to become the kind of improviser you want to be doing the kind of work you want to be doing, but you can play with fucking anybody. You know, that's just my goal. I think there's this I think there's this interesting thing that happens where someone will learn improv from one source and then as you described they treat that as that's the way to do improv as yeah. as opposed to just thinking that's a way to do improv. Why do you think a lot of improvisers focus on much on as you described doing improv correctly? Because some people need some people need um needed to be like chess or a math problem that if you do X, Y will occur. Yes. If you do X, Y will occur, but nobody who I've ever watched 
you know, I've watched watching a show says, ah, so many left brain inventions. I understood none of it, you know, brava. But what they do is they go, why is that woman standing like this? And so there's a physical intelligence that people bring to the stage that merely needs to be justified. And then the audience goes, ah, got it. So you don't have to invent better than where you are. Everything you need is right in front of you at the top of the scene. And if you change up something about your body, you're not going to be just yourself in a scene. I mean, in life, I finger point, judge, teach you how to do shit right, solve your problems and kill comedy. I don't want to play me. Yeah. Um, what was your, what was your experience at second city? Like difficult and very rewarding. It was difficult because I didn't go through tour co it was put right on the main stage. Now, granted I had been improvising for 12 years, so I was looking for an artistic challenge to stay in Chicago. Otherwise I wanted to be in LA where the challenge was, how could I be an artist in LA? Stupid. Um, so I felt like I got sort of a seventh grade hazing that I didn't have in seventh grade. Um, there were certain cast members that were more difficult to work with than others. I think through the years that softened up. It's not about being fair. <coughs> I was lucky to have that position. So every day I would come to second city and kind of put my shoulders back and actually plaster a smile on my face because I'd heard the physiological act of smiling promotes happiness. And I would say to myself, everyone wants my job. And so I would smile and be grateful. But it was difficult for me to navigate because uh, creating sketch wasn't my thing. It was, you know, even when I was doing 11 different, I was doing 11 different shows a week all over the city. And then when I was doing 11 shows a week at the Annoyance, I thought I was cheating because I was in one location. And now I'm only doing eight shows at Second City a week. And now I'm really cheating. You know what I mean? And I'm doing my same shit over and over again. And how do we make that new again? Which is why that kind of feeling of being on a gerbil wheel was difficult for me. Um, but at the same time, I have great admiration and respect for the people who came before me and after me, some with their own harder roads to take, especially people who um, were of minorities or have felt marginalized. And, uh, and this new world order for Second City is sad for me right now. I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping to rectify that in my brain. But, you know, for the guy who owns, uh, what the fuck does he own? Created this, what's that horrible uh, game where you can throw a whore in a trunk and lock it and then you go to a pizza parlor and spray everybody with bullets and then eat their pizza and walk out? What the fuck is that game? Grand Theft Auto. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Grand Theft Auto. That's the guy who owns Second City now. So that makes me a little sad. I'm not saying that there aren't things that are supposed to change, but I don't think that they've changed those things. And so it makes it a little difficult as an alumna when I really want to support the people who are on the stages there, but I don't know how to do it because I feel weird when I walk in the building. So I'm going to have to figure that out for myself. Again, I love Second City. I love being an alumna. Um, I don't have to say alumna. I can say alumni. I like being an alumni. Um, I'm grateful for the experience. It was really difficult and, and very rewarding ultimately, but it was, but it was difficult. I have to say I did two, two main stage reviews. You know, you're not the first person to tell me that they definitely see second city way differently now than they did before. It wasn't so too, though. I, 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 sorry to interrupt you. It wasn't so great before. Yeah. There's, they had problems. Every lar every institution has problems. 
you know it's it's how much are people willing to handle it and how are they handling it because i think for every problem there's a solution and um sometimes it's simply being kinder and sometimes it's it's hard for me it was hard for me to put my blinders on and say my path is my path versus wait a minute that's i didn't pull that shit she did and now i'm being blamed for it type of feeling but i don't think it's about like i said it's not about being fair and the minute i dropped that it was a lot easier for me i started realizing nope my path is my path and that's fine hmm what was it that got you into teaching improv mick created well first mick created a class at the annoyance for women and i remember thinking Ugh, i don't want to do a woman class. I want to do a people class, but I did want to teach. I don't know why initially. I guess I wanted to save people time because I knew what it was like being in the trenches. And I was like, if you're going to learn something, have a good experience, no matter what. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm, so, so I taught, but I taught this class and I realized, oh yeah, you know what? There are primary, primary women's institutions, colleges like Smith or whatever for a reason. I get that. They, they, maybe they felt safer or whatever the case may be. So I was trying to do some sort of empowerment on that end with the brilliant Jody Lennon, who's co-teaching it with me. And then I really wanted to teach at IO because I thought what was missing at IO was pretty much everything. It was just a bunch of people standing on the stage as themselves spouting intelligent shit. And I thought, but every time I'm on that stage, I'm so interested in character and environment and the teamwork behind it. So what I did was, Instead of performing for a whole year and a half, I coached three different teams at the exact same time, which is almost impossible if you've ever coached a team. One is always enough. Three was almost impossible. But I would create these weird-ass exercises high in my tub, and I would hand it to these teams, and they would do them, God bless them. And they realized that there was a point, you know, almost like a pill and a piece of cheese, Um and then finally, I just handed Sharna an eight and a half by 11 piece of yellow lined paper with the class on it. And I said, you need this class and this is why. And to her, to her, you know, uh, she, she, she bit, she bit. And what's, and she's made a fuckload of, she had made a fuckload of money off of me because there were only three levels before I did that. So her revenue stream went up a quarter. And, um, and actually it's oftentimes people's favorite levels to learn from it's it was not the easiest level to teach so anytime i trained a teacher i was like good luck with this shit and because i mean i'm i got weird shit in level two and i don't think it i don't know if it exists this way anymore i know with new owners as well at the io which are real estate investors um god bless again weird um i heard they're going to bring back my curriculum even though they had changed it all i don't know what they're going to do it doesn't matter i can make up new things tomorrow it doesn't none of it matters it's make them ups it's fucking make them ups <laughs> um when you teach what are some of the main things that you really try to get your students to understand jesus that's a loaded bitch um <laughs> well i mean start from the very basic if you're on the stage you belong everything you do and say is a clue why would you run away from a fucking clue so I'm not interested in you farting and running. I'm interested in you farting and going, mm, I farted. Two bean burritos, no cheese, extra fire sauce, Taco Bell on Clybourne. I like, like specific, specificity is what kills ambiguity for me. So I want you to get off hard and we're going to figure out a way to put a person in a world and see what happens. That's all. I want it to be simple. I do. 
and we can add the specificity to anything to make it rich and delicious. But what I hate is people stepping over bodies to get to a better body. It kind of annoys me. So um, I kind of remind them that where they are is right. And now their job is to be more right. Hmm. I'm kind of healthy that way. Is that okay? You know, if we were in England and I said cunty, that'd be perfectly fine because it just means jerk in England. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, you know, you are definitely known for um, you are definitely known for being this very strong and and unfiltered uh, performer. Um, have you Ooh. always kind of performed that way, or did did that take some time for you to develop? No, I was always that way. I mean, I was always that way at at the annoyance at at IO. I was dealing with group mind and ensemble and at Second City, I was dealing with social and political satire. But the annoyance, I could do and say what I wanted. Um, with no restrictions. I had restrictions at Second City for my first review. They actually censored me. They said, you can't go blue, which means cunty, titty, titty, cunty. I don't know what the fuck it means, but that's what they said. So I was like, okay, I'll exercise other muscles. You've got tour groups coming in from Hyde Park. Okay, I don't know. So it wasn't that I'm known. The annoyance was a place where content was protected merely by walking in the door. It's not that way anymore. Um, I would say three quarters, at least of the shows that we did then that were happy and playful and looked like fifth graders saying fucking fart uh, now would look ugly and unprotected. And I'm not interested in alienating our audience. Um, So what's left is whimsy, I would say. I mean, I've always tried to protect my show by um, having it on a late time, you know, a late night time slot on a fuck you time slot where, you know, if you're showing up, you should know what you're getting in for. Like that woman who came to the show, she probably should have Googled us because otherwise she should have taken her mother-in-law to see cats, you know? Um, so I guess that's what I'm known for, but sometimes I'll be in a 7.30 slot when they're having me go to another city and I'm like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. And then I try to protect it in at least the intro. I'll be like, messing with a friend is just... For those of you who don't know, it's described as a joyful, uncensored, and improvised romp through hell. So I can't protect it any more than that. When Rachel and I play, for example, as the boys, we say we make it worse. And if you're lucky, we might make it worst. You know? So I try my best to protect it. Um, it's not like I have Tourette's and I can't be controlled. Um, it's not like I can't talk to grandparents differently than I talk to my best friends, I can. So it's not like I can't adapt for my audience. But when I get to do and say whatever I want to do and say, I want to do and say whatever what I want to do and say. I mean, it's for me, this is all a sociological study of the human condition, good, bad, and ugly. So God bless, including this interview, which is probably sounds like mud. I'm so sorry. Oh, come on. This interview is going great. I love every moment of this. Oh my God, I'm so excited that it's going well. See, I have no idea about product. I'm all process. <laughs> well, you know, you you are certainly admired by so many women because of your ability to just say what the fuck you want to say. Um, and because, you know, as you very well know, a lot of women have had to put up with a, a whole lot. And, you know, and, you know, lately we've been hearing all of the horror stories of what women have had to deal with. And, you know, we're finally seeing more and more women, thanks to influencers like you, having the strength to say, this is what I'm going to do, and I don't care if that's not what you want. 
Well, here's the thing, though. I did suck up a lot. I'm a comedian from the 80s. I sucked up a fuckload because my desire to be on stage was going to supersede the weirdness I had to go through in order to be on stage. I applaud the women who took one look at the landscape and said, fuck this shit, I'm just going to be an actor. And frankly, it was my students decades later who would say shit as, a, as opposed to the underground of us talking and saying, stay away from this guy and da da da, which is how we always managed it. They're like, fuck this shit. I'm calling it out. So frankly, I've learned as much from them as they've learned from me. They might've seen my offstage, my onstage power, but I watched them offstage going unconscionable. And then that's when I came in and went, yeah, what the fuck was I doing? So again, you know, look, if you complained too much, you were dropped. That's all there was to it. So some people, it never affected them. Some people were traumatized. Some people like myself endured, hmm. but it was bad behavior. A lot of it was really bad behavior. And I'm, I'm surprised that I came out through the other end. I really am. And that I came out stronger in question mark. I don't know. I don't know, but I had as much negative reinforcement as I had positive reinforcement and some of the negative reinforcement. I would say what I compromised to be on main stage at age 34 would compromise me now as a human being at age 59. I'm glad I didn't have as much ego then that I could say, you know what, suck it up. You, there is a payoff on all of this. But, um, but I think it wrecked havoc with me for a while. It ultimately made me very strong and give less than two shits about everything in a good way for on stage. I don't take it personally on stage. I never have. Even Mick wrote in his book, because I read the page before, um, the first page, you know, the acknowledgement-y things. He said, Susan Messing will do anything on stage. I'm like, yeah, I will, because it's not me off stage. Sure, I'll try it on. What do you think is the main thing that all theaters need to be aware of or consciously try to do when it comes to delegating and making sure that they, you know, that this bad behavior that we've seen talked about so much is taken care of in the right way. I love that you say that, right? I know in October, Cincinnati is having an improv, uh, improv Cincinnati is actually hosting a summit for small improv theaters. And I think it's fantastic. I think people are going to really share what helps them, some codes of conduct and things like that. But there was something I was just thinking about right before that, that you said that, oh, things that they can do. You know what I need to know that I don't know yet? What is the road back from your shitty behavior? I want to know what people can do who've had distinctly bad behavior to get back into good graces because nobody's ever said, everybody's like, I'll cancel you. And I'm like, great, you're canceled. Now what? Now, did this person have an epiphany? Are they getting any therapy? How the fuck do they relay their apologies or change of behavior to the group at large? <clears throat> Everybody, mob mentality is exciting. It's so nice when somebody else fucked it up instead of you, isn't it? But I want to know what the road back is because I, th I think that if people acknowledge where they've really fucked up, and we're talking some major fuck up behavior, if you really acknowledge it, not deflect or justify or excuse, because I've seen that a lot. I've seen a lot of apology letters from people who just, I'm maligned. I'm like, no, you're an asshole and you got to figure that shit out. How do they get to come back? I would love to know that. Because I do believe that people can evolve and I do believe that people can be better, you know? Hmm. 
I mean, people could cancel me tomorrow for anything I even say on stage. God bless and Godspeed, you know, and then I guess I'll have to become the clinical child psychologist my mom wanted me to be. But the point being, I I would like to know that because that 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 grates on me, that 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 fucks with my conscience. You know what I mean? Because it's it's and I'm not saying that people who put out allegations about people aren't correct, because I do believe the victims. I'm saying now that this person is there, exposed, feeling horrible and shitty, I don't want them just to have to go somewhere else and do their stuff. I, I want to know what the road back is and what a theater would find appropriate to make that happen. I mean, there are people who are like absolute and they're like, nope, never going to happen, never going to come back. And I'm like, wow, I'm sorry that door slammed. You know, I hope you're perfect. But I do wish that people kind of considered that because it's just not anywhere there. We're really good at punishing people that deserve it. Um, most of them probably do. Um, we're not very good at at figuring out forgiveness and the road back. That that I guess that makes me passionate right now. And because I, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. If I had it, I would share it, I swear. I believe you. You know what yeah. I love is, as I'm hearing you, I love that even after having all this experience that you definitely are still open to learning and understanding more. Way, way. It's not just, remember, the political landscape has changed. People have changed. My daughter is so much more mature at age 20 than I probably was at age 40. She's so evolved. Um, and actually, you better learn from your kids if you have them, because uh, otherwise you're the biggest hypocrite on the planet. So she kind of showed me my own hypocrisy through action. Um, so yeah, I, I take the hard note every day. It's usually my own from myself. I, I, nobody can be harder than I am on myself. Nobody can be. And I'd be very surprised if somebody told me something about myself right now that was an incredible epiphany, because uh, look, I've sat in sludge. I know what it takes to come back. Not always easy. How did your show Messing with a Friend get started? It got started when I got married and then had a baby. And I realized, oh my God, I was doing eight different shows a week at this point at Second City. Um, I might only at, be able to do one show a week. So what, you know, if I could play with anybody I've ever wanted to play with or anybody I miss or don't get to play with, actors or not, um, I want to see what that's about. So... But please understand that messing with a friend, I still cringe at that feeling of, um, I don't know, it, it feels arrogant to have a show with your name in it. Now, don't get me wrong. Now everybody has a fucking show with their name in it. But I remember when I did it in the beginning, I was like, oh my God, it's so arrogant. And it's like the focus is on me and I didn't mean it. And So that's how it started. And uh, my very first show, uh, I guess I could figure out the night that the first show was because uh, Jack Farrell, a student of mine, almost died in class, ended up having a ruptured aorta. And so mm -hmm. Sharna called me right after my very first show. We had done it at the Second City ETC. It was part of a um, kind of a series that they did. It started at Second City, went to IO and landed at the Annoyance. So I played it in all three theaters. And so my very first night of doing the show, Sharna called me after the show and said, what did you do to that guy? And I said, I, I did nothing. I think we helped save his life and got him to the hospital because he had a ruptured aorta. Okay. So um, that was my first night. I want to say it was like 2007. And I did it for, I was in my 11th year when I couldn't do it all the time because Michael was sick. So I sort of did it when Michael was feeling good. Um, 
I traveled and taught when Michael was feeling good. When he wasn't feeling good, it was all Michael. So it, it's been over 11 years, but now it's sort of a special show. Actually, August 5th, Rachel and I have a show at The Annoyance, uh, Messing with Mason. Sometimes we're the boys, sometimes we're messing with Mason. I've been touring a lot with the brilliant John Lear. Um, he created Quick Draw and on Hulu and uh, 10 Items or Less on TBS. I knew him at uh, Northwestern. He really cracked the code for improv, really good narrative improv in a set show. It's really amazing. Um, but I started playing with him last year and we've been touring everywhere. And it's actually, I make it, I don't go Susan messing with John Lear. It's just messing with John Lear. I want John spotlighted in this shit. It's just by, you know, I have happened to have a good gerund as a last name. I haven't heard that word in a while, gerund. <laughs> That's a word we should there. all start using more often, Jared. Maybe you ought to be swimming. Is that a gerund, huh? Who's with me? <laughs> What has been the experience like to do that show and to get to share the stage with so many people that you just love uh, performing with? Honor of a lifetime. Honor of a lifetime. Every time I do it, I'm, I'm nothing without my friend. Otherwise, I would be doing stand-up alone in my living room. Um, I just think it's incredible to be able to have that opportunity to do what I want to do with who I want to be doing it with. I, that's just a luxury. Uh a huge luxury. I never have taken that show for granted. I never will take that show for granted. And anybody who asks me to do it and I do it and it's, it's a real, it's a real mitzvah for me. I don't know for my audience. You, you might ask them. They might be, Oh God, I endured that. But you know, the good news is you'll never see it again. And the bad news is you'll never see it again. So that's the beauty and the horror of the beast, isn't it? It sure is. You know, I recently came across your IMDb page <laughs> and there's a, there's a particular movie that according to IMDb, you're mostly known for. And that's, I think it's called let's go to jail. Let's go to prison. Let's go to prison. Excuse met, me. Let's go to prison. might be the best 30 seconds of my life as a, um, as an actress. It's really 30 seconds of my life. Odenkirk, Bob Odenkirk, um, I think Amy Poehler was supposed to do this part and she couldn't do it. So he asked me to do it, which was very kind of him because if I auditioned, I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten it. I had to play a stripper in a halo brace. And that to me, I never get props. So to have that big halo brace looking like it's screwed into your skull is such an honor and a pleasure. I have to tell you, they were always on, they were like on the set going, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm in heaven. And, uh, <laughs> We cut my part down because it really was no more than a sight joke in the middle of information being given in that scene. And when you kind of cut, you know, you're going to cut the bits. So it was pretty much 30 seconds of me and Dax Shepard. And then Dax is doing something and I'm in the background simply trying to get on stage in my halo brace and strip. And it was such a pleasure to struggle Oh my God, I was in heaven. I love being a victim on stage. It's so much fun. Uh, off stage, not, but on stage, so much fun. So having to deal with this malady was such a pleasure. I'll, I'll never be able to thank him enough for giving me that opportunity. So yeah, that's the best 30 seconds of my life. And as a matter of fact, strangely enough, the Hollywood Reporter, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter, reviewed it and they liked the two people they liked was the big black dude who was making a toilet wine, who's brilliant, forgot his name, please to excuse, and me. And I was there and like, 
I mean, I'm not joking. I'm 30 seconds at most. Maybe it's 25 if we did it with a stopwatch, but it's probably the best 25 to 30 seconds of my life. <laughs> there you go. Um, and by yeah. the way, it was a beautiful, subversive, cool ass film. It, the, I think what happened, it got fucked up in the editing. I feel like Universal Studios wanted to turn it into like Animal House. So they did like this kind of big boinky feel on it. When in fact, if you watch the way that Dax Shepard and Will Arnett are like drier than dry in this movie, if they had followed that trajectory, it would have been the perfect movie. I really do believe the same thing, just edited differently. I truly believe that. Well, that happens all the time in the movie business. You know, you have this great film, but then it gets into editing and that's when it gets hacked to bits and it becomes out it comes out just totally different. And a lot of times the director's not even happy with it. No, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they aren't. I mean, I know they gave Bob probably a, the worst budget on the planet. I do remember catering that day was literally McDonald's burgers, like just burgers on a table. And I was like, Oh, somebody went to McDonald's and bought us burgers versus a fancy film. And I'm, you know, again, more than happy. It, it, the fact that anybody at this stage of the game would be willing to, hedge any bets on me on any, at anything is I'm so grateful for it. I really am. I don't know why I'm, I, I just am. I always have felt that way. I think I always will feel that way. Maybe that's what keeps it fresh and young is because I'm like, oh man, they could drag me off stage at any time or they could replace me any time. And then they didn't. And I'm like, yes, you know? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a true sign that you were doing a great job. Oh, it, Sure, sure. Nobody wants to replace you while you're already in your halo brace. Nobody's going to do that. <laughs> they got um, to do, do a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I already had work. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because you mentioned this. What is it that you like about being the victim on stage? I think it's funny as fuck. I don't know why because it's not in life. I guess it's because I get to be anything I've ever wanted to be and anything I've never wanted to be, which is why I guess people maybe think I'm balls out. I'm just not scared to suffer on stage. So um, again, we, you know, as my dead husband used to say, homophobia, sexism, and racism still aren't funny. So I never make fun of, of uh, anybody who is disenfranchised or marginalized. I'm always punching up, you know, I think, I think that just lives in me. Um, but there are, there are characters that I've played on stage where I've come off stage and gone, ew, I can't believe I was that person, you know? And so as, so, but I, you know, I don't know. I just love crumbling. It's fun. So much so that I have warning bells going in my, off in my head going, uh, uh-uh, you gotta, you gotta win sometimes too, Susan. Uh-uh. When I play with John Lear though, I tend to fuck with him a lot because he's so affable and kind and funny and sweet that when I fuck with him and fuck with him and fuck with him and fuck with him. And then he finally blows. I will be sitting there just joyful. I also break the fourth wall a lot. I'm not, I don't, I make the audience sometimes a part of it without being responsible for it. And Mick is always like, Oh, you're going to break the fourth wall again. I'm like, give me a bigger stage. Maybe I won't. So I'll walk into a theater that's tiny, you know, like a real tiny theater with like a big pole in the middle. And I'll be like, Oh man, how can I fuck this theater till it's dead? You know, versus, you know, versus you know, there's a pole there. There's It only fits a few people. I don't care. I don't care. But I will make that stage much bigger than it looks like. 
Hmm. Um, do you find more excitement in playing vulnerable or strong, or do you think it's more of a balance? I don't know. I would hate to pigeonhole myself and I, I would hate to type myself as an improviser. That's, that's what it, when it feels, when things feel like samey again, then I'm constantly trying to shake it up because if I want to be typed, I'll just be an actor. You know, as an actor, I'm the funny bitchy best friend of the leading lady or your slightly mentally disabled older cousin. Like I've said before, I used to be your slightly mentally disabled younger cousin. And then I got older. So, um, I, I don't want to type myself as an improviser. Some people are like, look, I love to edit. I think editing's awesome. I love to do it. I just have an internal editor in me all the time because I have to do it from the inside so much in my shows. But if somebody said, oh, you're the editor, I'd start resenting them. So I like to be a jack of all trades when it comes to the work itself. I like to sometimes, you know, if I'm playing with more than one person, sometimes I'm just holding down the fort and painting. And other times, you know, I'm mirroring someone or I'm front and center or whatever the fuck it is. I don't care. I don't care. I just, I just, I'm grateful to be an integral part of a whole that I'm always grateful to be because otherwise I'd have to be on my own. And I hate going off on my own. I hate it. <laughs> I hear you. I really, I really like collaborating. I, it's really fun for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, the pandemic happened in, uh, in 2020. And of course it, changed and fucked up a whole lot of things for us. Um, how did you find yourself being able to deal with the pandemic, considering that we can't go to theaters anymore, we can't go to classes anymore, and everything is behind a computer screen like this? How were you able to to deal with that? Well, I didn't deal very well with it. Um, my husband died right at the top of the pandemic. He died April 8th of 2020. And it was it was so great to keep Michael alive longer than we think he should have been in the sense that, I mean, he really would have been. He had a glioblastoma in his spinal cord. They see them in the head every two to three weeks. They see them in the spinal cord every one to three years. So as Michael and I used to say, it's a bad tumor in a really bad place. But Avastin and immunotherapy really prolonged his life. So he died in April 8th and my my friend Christopher lives in my coach house and Christopher and Sophie and I were the only people who could touch each other. It was really weird. And uh, then I went through a complicated grief because I, I mean, it's, it's on a podcast somewhere. So it's not like I haven't said it before, but, um, and I've said it once. And so anybody can just find it and learn the story, but it was a complicated grief. So I had uh, many, I probably a mini breakdown if I thought about it, if I really think about it, but it was so quiet and lovely here that nobody knew I was having a mini breakdown and a complicated grief because we were in the middle of a pandemic, actually at the top of a pandemic. I do know that I was like, fuck improv forever and anything real life. You know, when you deal with things in real life, you're like, really, really? I'd rather deal with my mother's fibromyalgia than get on a stage and zip zoop, you know, fuck you. So I get that. Um, but I remember Rachel had been teaching on Zoom for a few months, my friend Rachel Mason. And I thought, you know what? Don't be such a prick about Zoom. Just just see if you can write a few exercises. Well, in 10 minutes, no, in two minutes, I'd written probably six exercises specifically for Zoom. So as shitty as it was for the theaters to be shuttered, especially our theater owners who really panicked, they had to because they had no revenue coming in and everything was, you know, 
terrifying for so many people. So many people were so isolated. Um, I think that Zoom, if nothing else, helped create community where people might have really felt alone. Um, I know that Rachel and um, my friend Neil Dandity and Rich Sohn and I did a show on Twitch every Friday that a lot of people, Twitch is, was a gaming platform, but we did some sort of live stupid show. And it was just us sitting around talking, but we had so much fun. And I was just in Cleveland the other weekend. I don't mean to name drop, but uh, but some guy came up to me and said, thank you so much for that show. It really helped me in the pandemic. I was really by myself and it literally was a way for us to connect. So I thought that was super sweet. Um I miss that show. We might, we might go back and do it. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I think it was a hard time for everyone. I don't think anybody came back the same person. Um, I was wiser. I wish I weren't. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it was a tough road back and, uh, I went through a lot of changes. I also stroked out last year, which changed some shit as well. Hmm. I had a stroke. I, I, I did not know that. I know, right? Well, all it did was it was a Wednesday before Memorial Day and I was um, struggling with words. And I even said to my daughter, I had a driver to the airport that day. So I know physically I could do whatever it was. It was literally at my word center. I was struggling to find certain words and I even had trouble like texting. Like I would, my sister later on saw a text I sent her and my mom and said, show this to your doctor because your syntax is fucked. And I went on my doctor portal, which I never do. I also took an aspirin in case I was stroking out because, you know, I'm an improviser. I should diagnose my own fucking stroke. What the fuck is wrong with me? But apparently it was right. Um, So I did go to my doctor and they ended up doing a CAT scan, no brain bleeds. But I did have a stroke exactly in those ward center, center, which was completely resolved by the time I got to the ER. Um... They had to give me stent surgery in the left side of my neck because that was completely blocked and my right side was perfectly open. So I had to sit in the hospital all weekend because they were afraid I'd stroke out more. I was like, ugh. So there's like alarms on your bed and shit like that. I begged them to turn the alarm off. They did. So I had stent surgery and uh, I woke up feeling fantastic, but I felt great ever since that Wednesday, you know? And uh, apparently my blood pressure went down to 68 over 22, which is apparently very low. So they put me in the ICU and I was the only non-intubated person in the ICU because they were just simply waiting for my blood pressure to rise. I did get to tell the doctors. I made sure to get their consent first. I said, I have a gross joke. Are you willing to listen to it? I don't usually write jokes. They said, sure. And I said, I'm really going to miss being choke fucked. I thought that was brilliant. Because it's a (laughs) sight. Thank you. You've made my day. So it's my only joke and I tell it all the time because it's the only joke I have. So I thought it was great. And I felt perfectly fine since. I take a statin and a baby and a baby aspirin. That's about it. And by the way, baby aspirins are no longer fun. They're orange, but they don't taste like orange. They taste like medicine. You have to just swallow them. Come on now. Yeah, I remember back in the day where medicines tasted like the color that they were. I, I yes. miss that too. Yeah, I miss it too. Well, purple is purple. I mean, it's never grape, is it? No, Although it's I really, not. I, have, I have a big shout out to the person who created purple in the lab because it's still pretty good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so, going through all of that that you were going through in 2020, and 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 by the way, um, I, I'm sorry that you that you went through all of that, and my sincerest condolences uh, for Thank for the loss of your husband. How 
Yeah, totally. Um, how are you able to get yourself? I'm sure it took a while, obviously, but how are you able to get yourself back into the mode of I'm going to teach again and I'm going to perform again? I don't know. It was gradual. It was gradual, like the opening up of the world. I feel like the world opened up at the rate that maybe I was able to do it, or maybe I just adjusted for it. Um, I don't know. I could have seen myself just going to the woods and doing shrooms for a couple of years. I don't know. Something, something shifted. I think the stroke really changed me. Um, it really changed me. It changed me in the sense that, um, that now I have to say things like, what do I want versus what do I hope to get? Or if I try hard enough, I'll get this in terms of relationships or whatever. I don't know. It really changed me. Changed me. I don't know. I just did. And I'm not having a stroke right now. I just, I guess I just don't have the words and it's not because I'm stumbling over them. So anybody listening in, in podcast land, don't worry. I'm not having a stroke. I'm just, just finding it difficult to kind of say how I feel now, you know, about that. But I do know it was pretty damn profound. I was like, okay, if I can go at any time, is this the way I want to go? Is this the kind of, are these the kind of relationships I want to be in? Um, old patterns are just not going to work for me anymore. Hope for something better is not going to work for me anymore. It's either there or not. And that, that includes relationships. That includes um, being on stage. That includes the way that I share my thoughts with people because I want to make sure that they have a better ride and a faster ride and an easier ride and a more loving ride, you know, navigating stage. Um, it's interesting. Last week I spent it with nine awesome men at the annoyance. It was their last day. And some, they're all from different places and different countries as well. But I think the thing that made me saddest was that they wanted to do it correctly and I was like, fuck, I, I don't think, I think I might've failed them because they were so worried about their show. And I'm going, no, it's the joy of you. You're right. You know, now you have to be more right. And I think people get really scared of their impulses and don't think it's right. You ever been, on, you ever been on stage and you're like, oh, I just missed that window of time. That shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know, I don't want a shoulda, coulda, woulda in my life. I don't want anybody to have to have a bad experience in their improv classes or with their teachers or with their peers. And I want them to have so much fun on stage because we still need comedy hard. And frankly, I think we just work smarter. I'm really kind of sick of the white bros on podcasts sort of saying, um, you know, uh, we can't do and say what we want anymore. I'm like, you're a moron. You, you can say whatever you want. I'm noticing comedy is so fucking smart. So much of comedy is so smart right now. And I'm like, wow, I'm in awe of it. And, and, and I'm sorry, but Tim Robert Robinson, all he does is fucking scream in his show. And I find it absolutely delightful. And my daughter loves him like a fucking hero. So he's saying what he wants. And it's not offending the world. They're looking at him like he's a car accident. It's great. <laughs> cause he is, cause he's great. <laughs> and so, as you look back at everything that you've gone through, to... oh my God, am I going to die? No, 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 no. <laughs> the end of your life approaches, Miss. <laughs> no need to call nine one one. Nobody's dying. Um, I didn't call nine one the first time. I was able to drive myself to the doctor's office and the ER. Just saying. Go on. 
That's badass. That's nothing. Yeah, fucking A. (laughs) But so as you look back on everything that you've gone through, what reflections do you have as you look back on where you've been and where you're at now? Well, I think I could only be who I was at the time that I was that. And that my maturation level might be, uh, might have taken longer than other people. Um, Maybe it affected my career. Maybe it affected my relationships with people. I don't know. Um, But if I could only be who I was at the time that I was that, I'm grateful for the maturation that I have had to get me to this point. Even though I have to say some of it were hard life lessons. Some of it was the hard note. Um, I think sometimes people are afraid to take the hard note, but I really took it to heart. And um, I, I'm hopefully a better person for it, but I really know ultimately I'm a much more empathetic teacher when I teach than because I think that some people, again, are brave to get on stage and some people rarely do I have to give the hard note. I mean, it really is about supporting joy. So I can have people doing the weirdest shit on the planet and they have no idea that it's weird or strange or odd because I've covered it in a piece of cheese so that they'll do it because I make up exercises I try too. And we can all fuck them up together. And what's the worst thing that's going to happen if people look stupid? People are going to laugh at you. We're doing comedy. Fuck you. You know? I know I, everything I say sounds the same. It all just, it's kind of like, I guess I'm like the equivalent of food on a cruise where everything looks beautiful the, the first day and then the second day everything just tastes like cardboard. I just said to uh, to John the other day, I said, yeah, I'm doing a podcast. God, I'm, I say the same fucking shit each time. I hope I don't say the same shit each time. Well, you know what? If I'm hearing it for the first time, it's new to me. Girl, you got it going on. <laughs> I have uh, one final question for you, Susan. Oh, Christ. Okay. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you'd like everyone else to hear? I don't think this advice was given to me. I think it was something I discovered through my doing that got me over the worst times. I think commitment isn't enough. It's recommitment when you want to give up. Don't let a bad experience, a bad person, a bad scene, a bad show, a bad year stop you. If you have something in your mind and it just won't go away, it's something you have to pursue. Um, Everything that's happened to me that has been deemed as traditionally uh, good has happened because I haven't given up. Mm -hmm. I know it has. It, it, it wasn't somebody else. It's, it, it, I'm not saying that people didn't support me along the way. Mick absolutely did. And my comrades in arms, by not making me get off stage, you know, have supported me. Honestly, um, I'm, I'm beyond grateful. And Mick and I used to joke that we were waiting for someone to just put the hook around us and kind of push us off stage. And And then we just go, oh, well, you know, we managed to, you know, convince them for as long as we did, you know, that kind of thing, that imposter syndrome. But um, we're creators and we're artists. And if you have something to say, you're right. We just haven't figured out how to do it yet. And so I think sometimes when we look at the bigger picture, we freak out because it looks like it takes so many steps. 
And as a very, very wise friend said to me, you just take the next right step. But if it won't leave your mind, oh, sometimes it's in the wrong form, but, but it's still right. You just have to figure out how it goes. I mean, social media is weird and everybody feels like the need that they have to be on, you, you know, sharing their life, whether it's their trip to Iceland, which is very attractive, by the way. I liked that trip to Iceland that my friend Lindsay posted. Um, but whether it's that or taking a risk of a ballet class when you're 65, I mean, why the fuck not? Again, I feel like we're protected by comedy. So I'm not afraid to look stupid in life anymore. I call that just unintentional comedy. You ever trip over the sidewalk and then you turn around and blame the sidewalk? That's unintentional comedy. And I do that kind of bullshit all the time. And now I'm laughing at myself instead of sobbing naked on a cold tile floor. Not that that isn't a valid choice. Hmm. Susan, this has been such an honor for me. So thank you so much for... And the talk is cheap, girl. <laughs> thank you so much for taking this time. I really appreciate you. If Lewis voice and your groovy and dreamy it's all perfect for you it's an honor to be here and share space with you so thank you and i do hope i can come back to florida we just have to throw him in the water and let the sharks decide after all it's shark week it absolutely is my wife's favorite time of year shark week really? oh yeah it- she loves shark week Oof. i don't know i remember seeing jaws in sixth grade and not being able to go in a pool afterwards <laughs> I hear you. Thank you so much, Susan. And I wish you so much continued success. Aw, thank you. I hope I do something right. That'd be good. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. I love being reminded to recommit and never give up. And I hope we all remember that for whatever it is that we love to do. It's so vital. Thank you so much, Susan, for taking time to chat with me today. Folks, be sure to look up this incredible woman. Believe me when I tell you that she will inspire and motivate you to be the best you can be. I hope you're all enjoying this podcast. If you are, let people know. Share this podcast with your friends, family, distant relatives, co-workers, neighbors, lovers, ex-lovers, mortal enemies. You get the picture. Get the word out there and let people know what a good time you're having here. I appreciate every single one of you listeners out there. Have a wonderful day, my friends, and see you next time for another episode of Improv and Magic.